0: We're so excited. Registration is officially open for our Weekend of Workshops in Annapolis, Maryland, September
1: 21st through 24th. You can visit com and click on Weekend of Workshops to find more information. We've had some really, really special events so far, and we're really looking forward to this one in September.
0: Yes, and if you've attended previous events, please know this is going to be all new material, workshop style, based on our new book, When Kids Say They're Trans. So we hope to see you there and check our website for more information. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States.
1: Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, We probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture.
0: And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self.
1: This is the thinking person's take on gender.
0: Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hello, dear Stella. How's my darling Sasha? (laughs) She's well. (laughs) It's nice to be uh, doing another one of these Kind of solo analysis episodes today.
1: Yeah, I I think when we have lots of guests in a row, I think we've had some great guests and they've been amazing. But I think there's a pent up need between me and you for analysis. <laughs> yeah, to reflect on it because <laughs> there's been so many fascinating conversations where we, we really have a lot to think about and talk about and wonder about because, as we all know, there's a lot of depth in gender. So I'm, I'm really glad we're having this just to kind of get some, get our thoughts in order.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's really nice. I enjoy it too. And, um, in terms of other stuff going on, there's, there's a press release for our book recently. (laughs) I'm so excited.
1: (laughs) So uh, for anybody who doesn't know, (laughs) we have wrote, written a book released by Swift Press in September. And, um, yeah, they've released their press release about it. So it feels very real just today. Uh, yeah, it feels very real. Yeah. yeah,
0: along with Lisa Marciano, our Jungian analyst friend and colleague. We've been working on this book for quite some time. It's been a, a labor of both love and technological frustration, I would say. <laughs> I, it's, I've... it's been really, um, it's been a really interesting process for sure.
1: I've I've written a few books and um, I've never written a book with people. And um, honestly, the first section of us writing this was, was a doddle. You did your bits. I did my bits. It was fine. It, I never anticipated it. was the edits. It was the yeah. edits that was like, who's doing what? Sorry, which chapter? Are you doing that chapter? Oh, well, have you done it? Where did you send it? Lisa, who sent that? I was like, oh my God. Hey, you know what? I am curious. Yes.
0: If anybody listening Knows a better way. You know, I like systems. (laughs) I'm a little bit crazy about systems. We were basically working on a draft in a Word document. And then we were waiting for one another like, okay, who has the latest draft? Okay, Stella has it. Stella, you send it to Lisa. Okay, Lisa, do you have the latest draft? Oh, crap, that's the old draft. And I know (laughs) out there in the world there's some better system that is way more efficient than this. But we did our best with those tools. and we've gotten it done, and the book will well, be amazing. I hope.
1: I, I would like to anticipate one. Everybody will say Google Docs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't have worked with that. So forget about forget about telling us that one. But the second is not that many trios have written a book. Mm. And I'd say if there was two of us, it would have been a lot simpler. And three of us made it much more complicated. Yeah, because it was one of two other people who could have had the book. Well, yeah. if it was either me or you there would have been a simplicity a to... ah yeah. yeah so i i i think my learning is whatever about systems you can go look for your systems and good luck with that i think my learning is doing a book with three people needs a bit of consideration and thought <laughs> but anyway yes, the finished well said. the finished product i think is really good so onward yeah. and upward what yeah. else have you got going on
0: well, I'm actually teaching a workshop for GeTA, which is very exciting. So Geta, I mean, probably people know by this point, uh, but Geta is officially one of our sponsors, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association, um, and they provide a lot of great training materials and resources for clinicians, therapists who want to kind of learn more about working with gender because there are so many complicated factors. So I'm presenting a workshop on Saturday, August 19th. It's called online visibility and political identities working with gender. And the, the concept behind this is that so many of us therapists Brilliant. are developing, you know, articles or you know opinion pieces online. We're trying to make our websites represent our work around gender in a way that is accurate. And yet a lot of the young people that parents may bring to, you know, our practice have very, very rigid political identities, not always, right? But sometimes that can be a barrier to effective therapeutic work. So, you know, I remember a long time ago on the podcast talking about how you know, the way I share my clinical intuitions and opinions in our program is not the same as how I would work with an individual client. I'm not there philosophizing gender with our therapy clients. I'm really meeting them where they're at, trying to understand where they're coming from. So it's, it's this complicated thing where we therapists want to represent our work accurately. And yet we also want to develop trust and rapport with new clients who might read a blog post that we wrote or read an article that we published and how do we navigate that? So that's what the workshop is going to be about on Saturday, August 19th.
1: And tell me, online visibility, is it also about your own profile online? If you follow me, yeah. Yeah,
0: the therapist's online (laughs) visibility, yeah, I know. Uh
1: (laughs) <laughs> do you
0: run into that i mean i imagine you have a caseload that you've been working with for some time yeah. do you um, take a lot of new clients yeah. and do they know like your gender work online i don't
1: take a lot of new clients but i have noticed consistently in the last year in a way that hadn't happened before is uh, clients say i saw you online but mm-hmm. before they they it just didn't come in it didn't arise so they are it's always been positive it's it's no big deal I'm very transparent, so anybody who's working with me knows who I am and what I work at. But I presume my my visible presence must be more obvious now, and so yeah, they might bring up something that I've 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 said online or something like that. Yeah. Well, that that hadn't happened before. What how do you navigate it?
0: Well, I haven't taken on a new client in quite some time, so I feel very fortunate that all of my current clients, you know, we have a really good relationship. And it's funny that you say that because I was thinking about the fact that Transgender Map, which is run by Andrea James, who's the activist who attacked Mike Bailey many years ago, she has basically put profiles up of many oh, yeah. of us you me with these really devilish cartoon versions oh, of us which are really creepy but but it was funny because you know I was thinking like if a new client that doesn't know me saw those profiles they would have such a bizarre understanding of the kind of work I do and then I'm thinking about clients that I've worked with for like many many years and they know, like, how supportive and encouraging yeah. our work is of them just, yeah. you know, being an autonomous individual and making, you know, conscious decisions but being self-compassionate. Like, it's just the, the profile that activists have painted of us is so far from what our clients know of us. So yeah. this is a real barrier at the beginning when you're developing a new relationship with a client. But usually, you know, once you have developed a rapport and a connection clients know you better and they, so so the online stuff isn't as big of a deal, but you know, it's a a big, it's a big uh, barrier. I think for a lot of therapists, like how do I actually communicate who, who I am and what I do when sometimes new clients are maybe very radical. Maybe they've adopted a lot of activist narratives and they don't understand like what real therapy is supposed to look like.
1: Yeah. I haven't met activist in my practice um and i i i I don't know you know i don't know how that would go like yourself you know it's it's a very warm space it's a very it's a very it's a lovely space it's not you know there isn't conflict but it's it's certainly something that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue among therapists from now on no matter what
0: yeah
1: i think it's going to become a big issue
0: yeah anything else going on with you that you want to update Um, the world about the world is listening
1: (laughs) i'm sure a hundred things but i can't think of anything in particular um yeah it's always busy (laughs) it's all i can say
0: yeah for sure and anything um that you can say about denver i know there's been talk in Mm -hmm. the town about denver (laughs) <laughs> or is this still under wraps?
1: Uh, very under wraps, but we're in okay. a lot of very, very interesting talks. And the Killarney group, which is the think tank, is, you know, really up and running and and we're having a lot of really interesting conversations where, you know, we've we've set about the gender care framework and, you know, that's going to be, it's, got, it's very ambitious, but it's, got, it's going to be amazing. So all of that has very much taken up my time and my brain. And yeah. it's actually really invigorating work. It's intellectually invigorating. It's really, it feels, do you know what actually it feels like? It feels like we've been criticising for, in my experience, for about seven years. We've been criticising, criticising, criticising this extraordinary, massive ideology that's overtaken. And now we've moved on from criticism into creating. Mm Well, we have to create our own resources. We Mm -hmm. have to create a new Mm -hmm. way of thinking about things. And that's a really exciting place. Now that we've criticized to the nth degree, <laughs> the yeah. evidence, uh, the the non-existent unsupported evidence, the theories, we, we are all at this stage, like genius critics, yeah. but now we're going into the, the creating, well, what we have isn't good enough. So now we have to create what it, what we want. So and can you tell
0: yeah. the audience, like you're talking broadly about a, a project through GenSpec that is creating... Uh, not only are you doing counter conferences with WPATH locations, but you're also creating, is it a document, like a framework?
1: Yeah, it's like a counter document to the standards of care. So, you know, WPATH and, uh, you know, run conferences. And we decided that we needed to run conferences in the same town at the same time to show the bigger picture, to offer, you know, people to think about gender in a different way, you know, Mm -hmm. not not necessarily in a in a kind of conflict way but like there is a different view of gender if you want to come up the road and see it it's Mm -hmm. there and you'll hear different ways of thinking about gender and at the same time WPATH have released you know eight versions over the last you know few decades of a standards of care of how to deal with you know gender diversity and the general ethos within WPATH is a medicalized model. medicalize your gender and this is how and this is when and this is in what way and that's their standards of care so Genspect have decided no more than we're doing an alternative different vision to their conferences we're also offering a different document which is a gender care framework which will offer a a, a bigger picture again but you know a look at gender diversity without medicalizing so if you want to medicalize off you go to WPATH that's your path If Mm -hmm. you want to look at gender diversity and how it could be in society and how it could be accepted in society in a non-medicalized way, whether it's through law or education or um, psychological kind of support or families, this is a framework to offer a view of gender in a non-medicalized approach and a, a kind of an accepting kind of attitude towards gender diversity without necessarily presuming that medicalization is is the way forward and the only way forward so okay. it's very ambitious
0: It's really exciting well you yeah. will have to keep us posted as details get ironed yeah. out
1: yeah I, I i could talk for hours so stop me let's move on let's get on <laughs> i to think this. i
0: think actually everyone's here because they like listening to you <laughs> talk for hours that's kind of the point of this podcast. but okay let's talk about something else for hours how about that
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. I think what we want to do is reflect on episodes that we've yeah. had. And yeah. I I think if I'm right that the kind of the the I'd nearly call them the old brigade. I hope they don't don't mind me saying that. That have aroused a lot of a lot of controversy, a lot of comment from our recent episodes. One was the Mike Bailey episode which we had, you know, a couple of months ago. And that was that, you know, there was an awful lot of content. And I, for the first time ever, Sasha, had a podcast without you. It was very strange.
0: I had FOMO. I was watching it crying. I know. It
1: was great. (laughs) It was awfully strange. But anyway, uh, that was with Mike Bailey on his own. Talking yeah. about the retraction of his journal. And then at the same time we also re-released or released for the first time the James Cantor episode. Yeah. And I was so scared of that a year ago. And then we released it this time and there was loads of comments, loads of pro, anti, neutral. There was an awful lot of very thought provoking yeah. comments. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I wasn't I wasn't tarred and and feathered Totally. Like I would have yeah. been a year ago. So yeah. that was that was really interesting as a movement. That that mm-hmm. was s- astonishing for me. I was just waiting for that episode to come out, literally yeah. with a sense of dread. Like here yeah. we go. No. Nope, and of course, fine.
0: if if you're listening to this, we'll include okay. the specific links to these episodes so that you can go back and listen to them, just to give you the context. But. Basically, we had Mike Bailey on to talk about a paper that he had recently written with a very large sample of parents being surveyed, asking questions about their gender dysphoric kids, and um, the paper ended up being retracted not too long after the episode. But in the, in the conversation, we talked about a lot of things. Of course, we talked about ROGD, because essentially the paper is about ROGD. And we also touched on some things that we had a lot of commentary on, specifically around Um, we, We were talking about gender identity and sexual orientation, and maybe we were talking about autogynophilia, and we brought up the question of pornography. And so Mike Bailey is a researcher, he's a psychologist and researcher. His perspective is there's no evidence that watching certain types of pornographic content can alter your sexual orientation. And we are saying we know, but what if it could be plausible in a new generation, in a new cohort with like a proliferation of Internet porn that we've never seen before? So I think, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before recording and the researchers just have a very different approach to making proclamations or suggesting hypotheses than somebody like myself. Like, first of all, I'm not a researcher, I'm not an academic. So that might be seen as actually um Like a knock against me, right? Because researchers seem to be very committed to until you can show me evidence for this. It's just a hypothesis. And I don't want to keep kind of spreading the word about it because what if it's not accurate? Mm. And I think people like you and I we have this whole podcast where we're basically just hypothesizing about anything that might be even like one percent possible because we're trying to understand something that's baffled basically the whole world like where are all these gender dysphoric kids coming from what role does this new internet social media age play and so you and i are like all hypothesis very little data and the hmm. researchers are all data Don't spread hypotheses. It's like spreading a rumor or something. So it's just interesting. It's different ways of doing things.
1: And I feel there's an awful lot of cultural commentators in the gender world these days. And they don't take all that well to these data machines (laughs) that are Mike Bailey and James Cantor. (laughs) They they don't really, they don't particularly uh, connect with them. And I, I think almost va- vice versa. But also, I think true researchers like James Cantor and Mike Bailey, they find it—it's a bit distasteful to throw theories around. They're like, mm-hmm. "Ooh, wh- wh- what are you doing?" <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that—that's not how we, we 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 conduct ourselves. And when you said that, Mike Bailey said, "There's no evidence." We're paraphrasing, but he effectively yeah, said, yeah, yeah. "There's no evidence to show that you know watching porn might shape a person's." Um, you know various different aspects of their behavior his emphasis in the sentence is there's no evidence our emphasis in the sentence is about watching porn and shaping behavior mm. we're all over there we're not we're the good oh yeah there's no evidence. anyway back to the main point let's talk yeah. about the point <laughs> and he would just stick on there's no evidence that's the end of that sentence and i have no more yeah. to say and yeah. so he could have shut something down And he did, no doubt, in our conversations on the point of there's no evidence. So that's the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Come back Mm -hmm. to me when there is, because I'm Mm -hmm. frankly not interested until there is. Now, in fairness, all researchers have some creativity because they think of things to research. So they are interested, but really they only get excited when they've got evidence. Yeah. Until then, it's frankly amateur show for them.
0: And you know what, to be honest, I think that's completely fair. I I think that's important and necessary because you and I are in this weird position because on one hand, we've analyzed to death the the gender medicine lack of research. And so we we don't (laughs) mind being research minded when we're saying there's no evidence for this. And on the other hand, we are willing to entertain a lot of hypotheses that are very just kind of out of the blue like well based on a few kids i've met you know this might be going on and that's not that's not congruent with you know it's it's almost like well that's how we got into
1: this trouble
0: exactly yeah exactly
1: yeah yeah sorry like
0: (laughs) with the onesie no you're right i mean she saw the onesie situation the brett pulling and she came up with a theory right and then that theory was treated as though it's fact and then kind of got out of control so you know i think and these a, guys a, yeah hmm. no go
1: ahead these guys have actually been in this world the gender world for decades yes so they have heard every theory under the sun and i remember when i first started talking about porn with my baby and he was just looking at me like you knew me like you know. he was so and like god bless him but like you know he was just like oh stella like <laughs> and I was like, "No, you're wrong. What have you thought?" And yeah. like, I suppose he said at the time, "He said, I've been defending the hypothesis of AGP for decades. Yeah, and I've heard it all. Yeah. And and um, he was so versed in defending it. Now, I'd say in a few decades, me and you, Sasha, will be very versed in things, and we could arguably be stuck in a in a rush." of it so we all do it's human so if you've been defending autogynephilia and your theories around it for for many many years i can see how you'd get stuck i'm not saying he is but i could see how you could and i'd say we will we will i you know what i mean but so it's it's very definitely there's the old brigade there's the new brigade and they're not each other's types yeah it's
0: really interesting
1: It is. And you could see it in the comments. And I have to say, I'm so and I would like to thank the listeners. I read all the comments on the YouTube, especially, but everywhere else as much as I could about James Cantor and how many people gave Mm. him a fair hearing and they Mm -hmm. didn't want to.
0: Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, they
1: mm-hmm. didn't want to listen to them. He annoyed them. They didn't mm-hmm. like the ah, uh, 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 things like that. And yet they were, because they were kind of decent people, they said, I, I listen to it. And yeah. I, I'm just so glad that we've kind of matured as a, as a movement almost.
0: Yeah, That
1: that was, that was a, there was a willingness for that. I don't think there would have been that willingness a year ago. Do you? I don't know.
0: No, I don't think so. And it's really interesting. The timing, I mean, First of all, you're so right that we personally were not attacked. I mean, there were a couple of people on Twitter, like, I lost all respect for you, oh, blah, yeah. blah, blah, which, <laughs> I mean, that's oh, fine. Sorry. But what what we really saw in the comments was people saying, you know, I really tried to hear what he was saying. I understood this part, yeah. and not this part. And yeah. actually, we had a lot of people say... I've been following Dr. Cantor's work forever. He is so incisive. He's so clear and I'm so proud, like so excited that you guys had him on. So yeah. we had a mixed bag of reactions. Massive. Massive. If,
1: any, if anybody's interested in, in, in like how a person can be, uh, I suppose, judged. Uh, it would be James Cantor like how much so many people had kind of absolutely judged him and then go and look at the comments and they were finding a different person to who they thought they would you you know Mm -hmm. what I mean and of course he has you know certain characteristics to be a sex researcher I I think you're going to be a little bit mad I think I think (laughs) everybody's involved in this how's a pretty and I include myself very much in it there's a bit of madness in us that we are yeah. even here, like. And I, I know, think... <laughs> I know. I
0: mean, our whole, like, dedication, like, our whole work is about, like, essentially sex change and gender dysphoria and sexual orientations. Like, that yeah. is kind of a little bit odd. So we're all a little bit odd. And I, I mean, I do, I do want to point out, like, I made a long kind of post about this within our YouTube comments. I loved to You can it. go look at it. But, yeah. you know, a lot of people were... I think the underlying message is that and I wanna I wanna draw a distinction here. James Cantor's underlying message is not palatable to a lot of people. So people yeah. came to the episode already kind of disliking him. Yeah. And in that context, when certain conversational styles <laughs> emerged, like very like we were all kind of in each other's face, like up, 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 up. what about this? Up, up, up. Uh, uh, uh. And- Yeah, and James Cantor did that at one point. People just really hated it. But I want to say something else. In a different episode, Wesley Yang Uh did not give us a second to even say anything. But because people liked his message, nobody really commented on that. So there's a bit of a double standard, I think. And to be honest, I have met both Wesley Yang and James Cantor and James Cantor and I get along very, very well. He's so fun to be around. He's engaging. He's dynamic. And as I said in my post, I want people to come to the table authentically, jumping in if they feel like I've said something wrong. Or just be be spontaneous. I want it to be Uh, a spontaneous conversation. I don't want you to be like afraid to point out something or to contradict me or to debate me because you think I'm too sensitive or whatever. So I found it to be a very refreshing conversation. And actually one of those conversations where I walked away with a lot to think about. It really caused me to think.
1: Um, I I agree with what you're saying, but it was, it was very interesting. I haven't met James Cantor, um, but I, I agree with you about conversation styles. And I think if we, as a podcast, started to get a corporate polished very careful kind of people on it would be so boring we we see it always on telly you know those little very neat sound bites i won't say very much i'm not going to go in on a stream of consciousness we would lose so much so i'm very glad to have the the genuine sasha the genuine me and the genuine whoever comes on but um yeah the wesley yang episode was so fascinating because i spent the first 30 minutes Silently, like James Cantor, ah, ah. <laughs> I couldn't get in. I think he was like a train. And it was amazing. It's like, it was fascinating. We, we want to give people that space. Sorry, yeah. yeah. But yeah. in the end, I kind of cut through it. I finally, 30 minutes in, made my point. And he went yes and off he went again <laughs> charging ahead of me for the next 30 minutes and so I met him in the Killarney conference in Ireland and I, I I was like waiting for the train I was like hello and I thought he was going to go charging ahead and i thought met this very different person. He was yeah. affable, was very easy and all this. So he must have had, I would, my, my own analysis of this is, he must have had, I want to get these points yeah. in. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I think he was a man who was just, I'm determined. And I know that feeling. I've sometimes been interviewed and I'm I'm kind of wired up going, I know what I want to say. And I have yeah, a lot sure. to say about this. For sure. And it was amazing. The last 15 minutes of the Wesley Young. It was this crescendo. It was phenomenal speech that he gave. I found it very, very moving. But yeah, it was very funny when I met him. I was like, there you go. He can crack jokes. (laughs) Yeah, I it, thought he was lovely when I met him. Absolutely.
0: and I think I think that's kind of the whole point. When you spend time with somebody in person versus like they're on a podium giving basically their spiel about their work, it's a it's totally different thing. So I would also invite our audience to keep that context in mind. You know, we are platforming people who have a message and their point is to come on this show and share the message. Sometimes they want to make sure to get a specific point out or they don't want to get derailed or, you know, they maybe like you said even with Mike Bailey, like they've heard this argument a million times yeah. so they're just going to jump in with like what's the what's the reason this argument doesn't make sense to me. So, I really love that. I want people to be Like, full steam ahead. Like, be honest. Tell me what you really think. I like that very much. So, um... uh, Another episode
1: I found was very interesting recently was the Julia Mason and Stephen Levine episode. And again, we were getting... Even though Stephen Levine, you know, I know he's in his 80s and he's an incredible mind. But it felt like part of the new brigade rather than the old because it was new research and it was very... Mm. And like, I know Mike Bailey has just done that amazing kind of... 1650 odd uh, parents, so I I shouldn't say that it's something about the era they've come from or something. I think it's the difference
0: between researchers and people who are psychiatrists, clinical, it's like research versus psychological, don't you think?
1: Yes, sorry, you're right, it's clinical versus research. And I thought that that, I loved that interview, but it didn't go where we thought it would go, we thought Mm. it was going. Towards the research that they'd done, which was a phenomenal piece of research. Mm. But instead, we went into a very reflective space about sex and how it impacts us. And I loved that episode, I have to say. It really gave me a lot of food for thought.
0: Yeah, it was really great. And, you know, Dr. Levine always, both times we've had him on, and I've had the pleasure of being able to spend time with him, man, you just get down to the root of the issue, like the human root of the issue so quickly. He just takes it there very quickly. Straight. And it's really Straight. intense. I mean, and it, it is a kind of... Um, when we were talking with Sarah Stockton, this came up, there's a real squeamishness around talking about sex and sexuality. And that might yeah. be part of like the quote new guard of clinicians. Like huh. maybe all of us from a certain generation and us and younger... Maybe we are so tiptoeing around these issues. Stephen Levine's like an old school psychiatrist. He just goes Mm. there. So I'm very interested in how these like generational differences, not just because of the age of the individual, but like the age they were educated and how things were approached in their programs. You know, even the old, like I've been reading all these old papers about transsexualism and like autogynephilia. I'm reading Phil Illy's book. Like there's a lot of stuff there, but there was no squeamishness around talking about how sexual arousal, for example, played a role in people's identity. Like people just got to the point a lot more directly. Whereas now there's almost like this corporate speak, which I'm very guilty of, of saying things like intimacy or, you know, sexual connection. Like I use some of these fluff words, but I'm like, Oh, that's that. This is a new way. The old school people just said exactly like, do you get an erection when blah, blah, blah happens? And it's like, well, yeah that's very direct <laughs> Do you I know what I
1: mean? really, yeah i think it's fascinating i think it's fascinating because we're losing our way with all this corporate speak and timidity and we're losing a lot of psychological insight and we're bringing in shame by by not being able to call call it what it is um i know i remember stephen levine saying when somebody says, what does what he interest?"s or what does he study, I says, I'm interested in sex and so are you. That's his <laughs> answer. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, thought that, that's the way to approach that. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show.
0: To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH. Providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GETA. GETA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach.
1: We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help.
0: Visit GETA at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. Yeah. And in that same episode, you know, Julia Mason was talking about, um, you know, how a lot of young people that she works with come in with these really shocking kind of stories of types of porn they've seen or the way that impacts their kind of sense of development. And I think specifically she was talking about you know, girls and how scary it can be when their exposure to certain types of images makes them even more oh, yeah. uncomfortable with their developing sexuality. So that again kind of ties into this big kind of cultural debate right now about porn. Is it, addictive? Is it an addiction? Is it dangerous? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? So there's a lot there that I would like for us to explore further, but uh, uh, that was important.
1: Julie Mason, you know, lifted a really good point when she started talking about how when she meets boys and testosterone is coming in, she explains to them, this is going to hit you like a truck Mm. and you you need to civilize yourself over the next few years. And it was so, I'd say she's a brilliant clinician. I thought that is, it's so unshaming to explain it in such a, you know what I mean, that there's going to be extraordinary hormonal urges. And that is because of your hormones, not because of you
0: as Ooh. such. You, you know
1: what I mean? It's a very it's a it's a it's a very good way of framing it for somebody who could be and I, I've met enough boys who are kind of shocked by their 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 urges. They're like, I, I can't believe what's kind of coming through my mind, you
0: know? Yeah. I mean I hear that and I'm not a guy, so I have no idea what that's like, but I am aware that there's a lot of Talk in certain online spaces about the toxicity of testosterone, particularly amongst like MTF or gender questioning males. So I wonder how that works. Like, how, how can we help young men understand that there are going to be these really intense... Experiences and urges, and kind of out of control feeling around your yeah. body, but it's not toxic and it's not bad. And over time, you'll figure out how to manage it. It's not going to take over your life or ruin your life. It's not like there's a poison coursing through your body because, you know, it, it, some of the detransition males have talked about these, you know, this already this fear they have of masculinity. And then the online spaces that are really amping up, like that testosterone is this toxic substance. So, I'm I'm really not sure how we help young men with that without creating any shame or creating a war with their own bodies. You know, I think it's complicated. Well, I would say, you know, the, you know,
1: as I talked about in my in my book, you know, the Disneyfication of childhood has a lot to answer for because actually life, you know, is is filled with an awful lot of problems. And, you know, the reality of life is actually phenomenally. There's a lot of cruelty, like from homelessness to starving people and famine and disease. And um, when you look at the impact of testosterone, yeah, it certainly seems to be a beast that people need to kind of men need to be able to control at the same time, you know, oestrogen and progesterone is coming in for women. We're bleeding every month. If we have sex, we could be left with a baby that we we have to look after for, for, you know, and I know that's a beautiful experience, but it can also be a kind of a shattering experience if you're 16 or Mm -hmm. 14. And so we have our own, the, the girls have their own kind of reality to contend with, with their biology. And my God, it's, it's pretty big. While the boys have their reality to contend with. It's part of the role of the adolescent to realize, honestly, there's some parts of truth that are, of life that are unfathomable. They're really yeah. difficult. And it's between 10 and 20 that we're starting to learn these really bitter truths about life and that there is greatness in testosterone and real challenges. And there's greatness in being a woman and real challenges. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the, the complexity of life. And there's a, there's a kind of a new, new generational vibe of, oh, don't mention the the bad things because they'll run with it and say, I don't want that. I don't want that. It's, it's this avoidance of reality, avoidance of anything negative. It brings me out in hives Mm -hmm. the way that we can't talk about the negative. It's so repressive and it's like something out of, you know, um, you know, Decades ago where you're not allowed to talk about the negatives rather than no, we have to because these, you know, if remember back in the day, I'm sure you've read of 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 little girls who who didn't know a period was coming and next thing they were bleeding because nobody was telling them about Mm -hmm. it. We'll Mm -hmm. end up there if Mm -hmm. we keep in this vibe of don't tell them anything negative. They'll think it's toxic. There's my little rant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. And I mean, I'm actually thinking back about a piece that I, I read from Marcus Evans a long time ago and something he said, I couldn't remember if it was in his book with Sue Evans or in an article, but he said something like, you know, the adolescent female has to come to terms with being penetrated. And it's, again, one of those like that's an old school psychologist and depth analysis way of just calling something out that I probably never would have written something like that. And when I first read it, it was a bit jarring. I was like, oh, dang, he just went there. But then, you know, what you're saying now and what I've thought about a lot is like, absolutely, this is a terrifying prospect. And I think what's happening now is it's like we're taking kids declarations at face value, like. Would you like to be penetrated, you know, 14-year-old? No. Okay, well, then you don't need your vagina anyway. That's almost well, what we're doing. Yeah. And, of course, it's the same question about Would fertility. you like to bleed
1: every month? No? Yes. Okay, well, let's get rid of that. Are you thinking yeah. about
0: having children in the future, 16-year-old yeah. girl? And <laughs> it's like... Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're taking a developmental temporary moment of fear and insecurity and ambivalence and fe- whatever the feelings and are. And also
1: a difficult challenge as part of the human condition, which is yes. the fact that we bleed every month or that we have huge hormonal ups and downs or that testosterone can get the better of you and make you act a little bit crazy.
0: Yeah. They're, yeah.
1: That's all we have. We don't have any other bodies it would be great if we didn't you know maybe I don't know but that's all we have so we've got to contend with it so I think what you're saying about the old school thing is really interesting I remember I went through a phase of reading papers from the 80s about transsexualism and I found them phenomenal Mm. I found them really Mm. really deep Mm. and I was like this is stuff that I hadn't thought about and I thought I'd thought about everything they were really really thinking very deeply about them I think yeah. we've lost a lot of that.
0: And, you know, interestingly, like, we'll move into the Genia yeah. episode. Genia's is the one who alerted me to this series of papers that this, I think. Oh, yeah. The, this uh, endocrinologist compiled after the kind of Christine Jorgensen news story, whatever. And I, I read it and I read this this paper that he kind of shared excerpts of all the letters he had gotten from people who oh, wanted yeah. to change sex. And even the people themselves who were writing in had very detailed, non-pathologizing, just descriptions of their plight. And many of them, which you could tell are obviously autogynephilic, you know, and they're just describing this orientation they have and this draw they have and this desire that they have. And they had the capacity, I'm sure there was a ton of shame built into their experiences, right? Because of the time where they lived, but they had no explanation for what was going on. So there was a little bit of like, I don't know what the word is. Like there was an earnest way that they were just writing and explaining. Like This is what I think about. This is how I feel. This is the experience I have with my body. And it wasn't kind of covered with all this fluffy language it was so raw and honest so mm. not only are therapists struggling to articulate some of these real things but clients and patients and young people ironically we have all this language now but they are actually missing the real language like they can't acknowledge like i'm aroused by this idea like, they can't say that
1: wow it's like we've really closed up our our, our ability to speak about sex in an honest way it's yeah. it's amazing. I think it's the hypersexualizing. Just it just closed us up on some level. It's it's extraordinary. Genya uh, Genya's episode did bring in the kind of stop the press insight that the famous Dutch protocol, which we could be accused of being obsessed with, but for good reason, the famous Dutch protocol. Genya unearthed the kind of the research proceeding. Why they chose to give puberty blockers, which had not been designed for this purpose, to a child who had effectively, as far as I could see, a fear of periods and mm. and what went with it. And from then on gave it to kind of um, children who had gender related distress. And the reason why, and Jen is an absolute unmatched researcher, um, was because that they had... They analysed the research of the adults who had transitioned and they decided, they hit upon the point that the fact is that the majority of them are male. Testosterone really makes its presence felt in adolescence and the ability for these um, biological men as such to pass as women was very, very limited. And their solution, rather than thinking this was perhaps something that wasn't really uh, uh, very doable they instead said well it would be doable it would be doable if they never had testosterone it would be doable if we stopped their their puberty mm-hmm. and so it began mm-hmm. and uh Genia had studied the kind of research to realize that was the kind of hypothesis and so then they started to stop the the puberty to see how that's happened. Now that was some time ago, and there you know the numbers are are quite low about, like we'll be some time before we really know the long term evidence of that, mm-hmm. and the the long term what what, what how's that worked out? you, you know yeah. what I mean? That's going to take some time, but it was really really important piece of information for people to know.
0: Yeah, a, a lot of people commented that this was the episode that helped them tie it all together. And um, it was really powerful. And I just want to, I just want to, you know, make sure people understand. Jenny is not an academic researcher, but she's incredibly <laughs> adept at analyzing research. Right. Yeah. So yeah. she is a, a research queen in that she knows the research inside and out. She has analyzed it very, very, very carefully. She understands how research is conducted, but we just want to be clear. She is not a researcher herself. She's not an academic. Okay. I shouldn't a, have said that. that. Yeah. I just but, want to, I yeah, know it's what a good you point. meant. I just want yeah. to make sure the audience understands. Where Her ability trying to, like, to yeah.
1: extrapolate the points mm-hmm. and, and, and bring in the actual narrative is, is, is really, that's what's unmatched, but it's, yeah. a, it's a serious talent. She has to, to be able to read research is, is a, a talent in itself as opposed to just to do the research, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was there was a other kind of block, like let's say they were all the researchers and that they, they've been really interesting as a as a kind of a, a group. Another group that I found really interesting in the last few episodes is the group of those that once believed and then came back. And and who 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 comes to my mind would be Rose, who who rose, who rose, who raised children to be, you know, gender, uh, gender positive, and who ended up with first one trans identified kid and then another, and then she kind Mm. of turned back. Then there was Jamie Reed, who totally believed in, like, you know, the whole let's say trans kids, stop the puberty, the whole lot, and then came to believe this isn't working out at all. And she became, you know, the, the most well-known whistleblower and such an important part of of, of this chapter in, in cultural history. And then Sarah Stockton, who also was really involved in the pro-affirmative, pro-medicalization of childhood, who kind of came to believe that this is not what should have been happening at all. Mm -hmm. and pulled away from it and is now speaking up about it so those three as as a piece Mm -hmm. I think are interesting to reflect upon because they kind of reminded me of each other even though they were very different personalities like strikingly difficult yeah Mm -hmm. wonder why I thought is it just that they once believed I think it is they just once believed and now they don't and so there was a very similar theme running through those episodes
0: Well, I'm always interested in kind of the arc of belief change. You know, like yeah. how does someone develop a new belief? How does someone, let's say, stop believing an old belief? Like that's very interesting. So I was really fascinated by their stories of, and and they all said because I a question that you often ask, which I really like, is was there a moment? You know, like is yeah, yeah. there a moment where? And I remember all three of them saying stuff along the lines of. You know there were lots of little moments and and that's so interesting because i just think a lot about like how do we get how does somebody change their mind and it's usually lots of little moments like this thing happened and made me go hmm, you know and then this other thing happened and then i had to question this well, other well, situation yeah. like
1: and some of those moments were harrowing like with sarah stockton's yeah. episode you know there was a guy coming oh. into the office saying you don't know about beauty blockers. You don't seem to know that these are not approved. Yeah, A father
0: mm-hmm. who then
1: ended up in a court case that he lost and he died by suicide. Like that, that as far as I know, that that is a whole unknown story that, you know, really should be reported on. And we should know this story, you know, we, we should know what happened there. I, I'd love to know in, in, in this person's honour, this father's honour. I'd love to know what happened there and how we could give that tragedy some, some, some honor or something. Mm-hmm. If you follow me some kind of respect because I don't know the pain he must have gone through. I, I don't know anything about this person, yeah. but you can sometimes hear just one throwaway sentence and you can go, Oh my God, what mm-hmm. must have happened? What must mm-hmm. have happened mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. that person's life? And I say that like, you know, I, 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 I'm probably speaking out of turn. I don't know anything. So there's probably all sorts of levels of, of nuance that I don't know about. But it sounded tragic to me.
0: Yeah. When, when Sarah mentioned that, cause she brought up the father bringing her the research initially at one point in our conversation and that being a kind of wake up call that You know, even after all my training, I didn't know about this puberty blocker. And then later in the conversation, she mentioned that that father died by suicide and we don't know anything, you know, just in the same way that we urge so much caution about how suicide is discussed with trans identified people or trans people. like we don't want to paint some kind of like unifying picture that we know what happened. Um, But I think the point is that This is, these families are in such a complicated spot and whether it's a combination of like mental health issues or just family dynamics or the difficulty of a court case, like there's probably a hundred things that were playing a role here. Um, But when Sarah said that, I remember you and I afterwards talking like, what was that about? We we didn't really ask any questions. We don't know much about it. But that was such a striking moment that I agree. Like, I wish we had a, the chance to just honor that story better. We don't know that story. But I, I wonder if anybody would, like, take up on that story. Yeah. I, I have no idea. If there's writers or journalists who want to understand more about that, it will contact Sarah. I have no clue. But yeah. that's really tragic.
1: Yeah. It was a devastating little snapshot into who knows what and yeah. you know, some of the stories that Jamie read cause she tumbled out lots of stories and each one was like, Oh my
0: God. How yeah, you sh- yeah. People should read the affidavit, which is available online. It is unbelievable. Yeah. These stories. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Of, of girls and of boys in the clinics being fast tracked, being medicalized harrowing, really difficult stories, really difficult challenges. And, mm-hmm. you know, it brings to mind. Remember the episode with Hannah Barnes and, and it's time to think, you know what I mean? Of just like, what were they doing? There was a group thing going on in these clinics. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think I'd ever work in a clinic. I'd be afraid mm-hmm. of everybody's opinions. Like the crap people can uh, agree upon when there's a few people in the room. Mm-hmm.
0: That's such Frightened. a good point. Yeah. Well, I mean, some other interviews that we did and didn't really have a chance to process together were Eliza Mondegreen, who was also at the GenSpec conference, who I got to meet. and Her research is so, so, so fascinating. Um, And uh, recently, there was a YouTube comment that asked something like, I wonder if... um, Eliza's research would be useful in conducting further studies about ROGD and I think that's a great question like you know polling people who actually are trans identified about the role online communities played in their sense of identity or how they receive support or pushback there like that would be very very interesting but that was a a huge episode and it's just it's crucial her work is so important
1: and she's amazing at the kind of the new the new cohort of neo identities, neo pronouns, nullification, all the new stuff that like three years ago was was really on the outer image, outer limits. And now it's 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 really part of the online community. Yeah. So what what she's bringing to us is so important for um, our understanding of where it's going. And it's not great news because lo- on lots of levels, you would say that there's an awful lot of more knowledge. There's a lot more knowledge of. Mm-hmm detransitioners, about desistance, about different concepts. I think the public really have informed themselves or have been informed. But there's a a huge new kind of push for all these kind of really kind of extraordinarily surreal way beyond non-binary into Mm -hmm. into really extreme um, versions of themselves with a, a new identity and they will create it any way they want and they'll agonize over it and they have a whole community backing them up. She, she's the woman who, who really is bringing word from the trenches of that. And I, I think it's, it's so important that we have her.
0: And, you know, this, this definitely makes me think about this distinction you made earlier about the old guard versus the oh, new yeah. guard. It's funny that that's come up in a couple of different ways during this episode, but. I mean, Eliza to me is part of the new guard, the cultural critics who are really looking at the influence of the internet, of social and political changes, um, you know, what what kind of concepts are being shared and taught both through schools, counseling centers, LGBT friendly, queer theory, influence, like that is the new guard. And that seems to be so disconnected from the sexology old guard. You know, yeah. like, I remember even recently Deborah So wrote a tweet that said there are only two types of, like, trans-identified males. They're either gay or AGP and nothing in between or something like that. And, I of course, that. she got yes. piled on. But, yeah. but this is so interesting. There's, like, there's so many different, like, little pockets of people who use a certain lens to view these things and we're trying to have a wider lens that's why so yeah. many of them have been on our show but it would be kind of cool to set up I'm just thinking now in gen style like a panel with like sexology versus culture uh-huh. critics or something because these Lovely. are two different ways of thinking about it
1: yeah and they have to start acknowledging each other Because being off in their silos doesn't work. It's great to have research. It's great to have cultural commentary and they both need to listen to each other (laughs) because neither has it all sorted. I think as well, I think for for our own podcast, we'll need to bring in some parents experiences because having a kid who has a neo identity or who has, you know, a determination for, you know, chest nullification and gender nullification, what Mm. that must be like, I I don't know what that would be like. And I I think it would be very, very difficult. And so I I think we really need to, you know, parent reports are are a well-established way of 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 gaining a deeper understanding of whatever might be going on. And Mm -hmm. I think in many ways they have been, you know, they've been kept out of the picture in many ways with with gender and they've put themselves into the center and I'm delighted they have and Pitt have their book coming out in August and I'm thrilled that they do Parents of Inconvenient Truths about trans and you know with our school episodes you know with Kate Goonan and and Kate Parker and different other people I want to say about Kate Mm. (laughs) Goonan, Kate Goonan is a jewel and she does amazing work in Genspeck, really amazing, we've had so much positive feedback so many people have emailed saying you know she was the pivotal presence that made a difference to their kid being socially transitioned and their rollback being allowed to happen or their kid not being socially transitioned by the the school because of Kate Goonan and stuff like that but when she came on to our episode she said to no what did she say something like there was no successes whatsoever And my husband oh. came back and he said, What's this about Kate Gooden having no successes whatsoever? I said, I oh, know that's the way Kate speaks. <laughs> it doesn't mean she actually had no successes whatsoever. She had some phenomenal successes and still does to this day. Everybody who's worked with Kate have really, yes. really positive things. It was more like a throwaway remark. I think along the lines of nobody slapped their forehead and said, I now understand about gender. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's more like she's, she's had wins within, mm-hmm. within the world of a school. And mm-hmm. schools do not proclaim new beliefs mm-hmm. or old beliefs. Sc- schools, mm-hmm. they're quite tight-lipped. But I, I think the schools, you know, season, is very important for for parents. Parents who've been, you, you know, they have been so written out. They they really need their time.
0: Yeah, and I hope that our um, listeners will enjoy the conversation with Alex Kappa, which by now would have probably already come out. But yeah. you know that that's a great example of a rare situation where a school. As a school conceptually takes a shift in how they're approaching this rather than what Kate was talking about, which I think is like, you know, deal with that teacher individually, right? Like, see if you can get that teacher just on board with your family's plan. Alex Capo, after observing kind of what was happening in his school, said, okay, we're shifting our entire policy around this. And it was really
1: successful. It went, ways. it went from a, a lot in a small school of something like 42 kids. And there was a, you know, a, 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 pre, a present, you know, minority of gender distressed kids to a culture of desistance. Yeah. Where kids started to desist and then there was a contagion of desistance. And I've always thought that anything in anybody knows about social contagion will know. The more we talk about desistance and the more we talk about detransition, the more likelihood there will be desistance yeah. and, and detransition yeah. for, you know, for those who want it. But it, it's, it's often an unacknowledged point that there will inevitably be a contagion around detransition and desistance.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. Well, I think this was a an interesting look back and analysis and It was a release
1: for me. Yes. I was yes. able we to were talk like
0: about it. Racehorses being held back from our nature. <laughs> and here we were. Free. We ran free <laughs> <laughs> And there's much more to come. I think on our radar, we have some good interviews coming up. We're going to have Corinna Cohn on. We're going to have Phil Illy on. We have so many cool people. Erin Kimberly is coming on. So we're really excited. And also, I think we will be crafting a part two of who gets embroiled in the gender debates. Because there's a lot of people we have not gotten to pick on yet
1: and I was so pleased so many people messaged me around that saying I feel seen I feel seen I'm like we're all we're all seen." yeah it was it's lovely. great I was yeah. really
0: pleased like there was really positive feedback and there's so many more kind of types of yeah. people that we didn't get to address so I'm really excited I went from being really scared about that episode to yeah. like oh let's do more of this I
1: loved I loved yeah. that episode it was great I thought it was really honest yeah totally.
0: okay my darling that was great talking to you we'll see you next time yeah bye thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens listener support means a lot to us if you enjoy the show please like and subscribe on itunes and leave a review
1: for more information visit widerlenspod.com there you'll learn about joining our listener community how to contribute to our show and where to find us on social media
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.